that those of you who would like to meditate upon the, uh, the week of uh, messages in this area would do well to take the 119th Psalm as your, um, your portion for study at home, perhaps with your family, something to sing through even there. But we'll be meditating upon that as well as what the Bible has to say in a number of other places about the Word of God itself and the life of the believer. This morning I'd like to read for you just a portion out of the 8th chapter of John's Gospel. In John chapter 8, I'll begin reading at verse 31. We will read through the 47th verse. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's offspring, and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, You shall become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. If therefore the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We are not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceed forth and come from God. For I, have not, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them, because you are not of God. It will come as no surprise to you if I describe this as an age of doctrinal decline and concessiveness, where the faith once for all delivered to the saints is being steadily and progressively eroded, is losing its integrity, where orthodox meaning is departing from standard theological terms, where the character of that faith, which would have been known in the Reformation and years before, is hardly identifiable anymore among the modern theologians. The boundaries are being eroded, and truth by truth is being reinterpreted so that our traditional dogmas in the Christian faith can now be held up to ridicule. It's not only an age of doctrinal concessiveness, but I say it's an age of doctrinal synthesis as well. An age of synthesis which is attempting to accommodate the Christian faith to modern science and to modern philosophy, a yielding of the determinative authority of the Word of God 
in the field of knowledge to other authorities, the authority of the scientist or the philosopher or the sociologist. Indeed, humanistic assumptions and methods play the greatest part in modern theology, especially as modern theology speaks about the Word of God. And so it's an age of concessiveness, and it's an age of synthesis. And I think the synthesis methodology of modern theology and the concessive results of modern theology come to full expression when we look at the modern attitude toward the Word of God, especially as the Word of God is found in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. Perhaps three things can best illustrate for you the problem that lies behind this morning's message. Three elements of the concession of modern theology and its synthesis with humanistic assumptions. The first element is this. There has been, since the 1800s, the late 1800s, a progressing challenge to the very, what we are told is unscientific, equation between the Word of God and Revelation, between the Bible and God's Word. We cannot take that book to be purely and simply, at face value, the Word of God. A second element of the modern consensus, it seems to me, against the Word of God, is expressed well by William Temple, who said that there are truths about Revelation, and that's what theologians talk about, truths about Revelation, but there are no revealed truths. You see, there's quite a difference. God does not reveal truths. His Word doesn't take that as its function. And so the unscientific equation of the Bible as the Word of God the fact that there are no revealed truths is in climax. These two truths are climaxed in the declaration of Karl Barth that subjective experience is the fulcrum of revelation. That when God so illumines my heart and brings me into an encounter with him in a moment of crisis, when the word of God is used in that way, then it becomes for me the word of God. The fulcrum is my experience. The authority of God is mediated in that moment. And so we have the word of God seen as an encounter between a subject and uh, something that is a pointer to God. And I think that's parallel very often in the view of uh, Rudolf Bultmann, who says that the word of God is really a power, not a truth. It is a power to put me in a new position and to reassess my standing in life. Well, that's the background. The modern concessiveness and the modern synthesis. The Bible can't be purely and simply equated with the word of God. Indeed, there can be no revealed truths, although there may be truths about Revelation. And finally, subjective experience is the fulcrum of God's authority as he uses the word of God to put me in a new position. I think the attempt among modern theologians can very well be summarized as an attempt to have the lordship of Christ and to have salvation from God, but to have these two things, lordship and salvation, apart from the traditional understanding of the scriptures, apart from an authoritative and infallible and errant word from God. I think there's no doubt but that modern theology wants lordship and it wants salvation, but it doesn't want a word from God. Well, then why is it so important? I mean, it is against the grain. It's against the, the spirit of our times. It's against the flow. I mean, why do we stand in the stream fighting it? After all, the important things are being salvaged, right? God shall still be the Lord. Jesus shall still be my Savior. Why do we need to get pulled down to some scholastic terribly academic debate over the Word of God. Why is it so important to believe in an inspired and infallible, nay, an inerrant Word of God? 
What is the necessity of absolute scriptural authority? Why do we create such a commotion here? Why do we at the seminary write it into the doctrinal stand of every faculty member that he stands for the inerrancy of the word of God? I propose to you this morning that until you can see the importance of this doctrine and until you can see its centrality to the Bible, you will never become a militant defender of scriptural authority and you will never become a godly, convincing proclaimer of the word of God. I don't say that you won't be a Christian. I don't say that you won't serve the Lord. And I don't say that you won't be of some service in the kingdom. But you will not be a militant defender of God's authoritative word. And you will not be a convincing proclaimer of his covenantal scriptures. To put it briefly, I think the importance or the centrality, the necessity of an inspired and infallible, inerrant word of God, the importance of this doctrine is very briefly Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior. And that's got to be a theme that's close to the heart of every born-again Christian. Jesus Christ. That's why we defend an infallible Bible. That's why we defend an inerrant Bible. That's why we hold to absolute biblical authority and equate the Word of God with the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament. I think we must be committed to these doctrines about Scripture precisely because we own Christ as a covenant prophet-priest and king for us. Let me give you a little bit of uh, theological and historical background to that kind of thesis. That it's because of Jesus Christ that we must fight against synthesis theology and maintain the inspired and inerrant word of God. If you were to uh, try to capture what theology is all about, I know there's a number of ways of doing this and I wouldn't want to reduce it to just one, but I think one very good way to capture the aim of theology and, in fact, the aim of the Christian faith in general is in J.I. Packer's uh, little title, Knowing God. That's what it's all about, knowing God. And of course, not in any narrow intellectualistic sense, not God in some sort of uh, narrow monotheistic sense apart from all the details of Scripture, but in the broadest theological and rich sense, knowing and knowing God. That's what we're doing when we study theology. And the Scriptures present this God to us in two basic and related ways. God's presented to us in the Bible as Lord, and God is presented to us in the Bible as Savior. Indeed, the whole sum of, of uh, scriptural knowledge can easily be summarized under those two categories. The Lordship of God, and then his saving work. God is our covenant head, and as the covenant head, we see him as both transcendent from us and eminent to us. He is transcendent, you see, because he's not restricted by anything. He's not dependent on anything or anyone. He is fully sovereign. He is above all the king. And yet this transcendent and holy sovereign is also eminent. He is intimately related to us. He is close at hand. He can be identified in the realm of creation. He makes himself known. He operates in creation. He even comes right into my heart. Yes, God is transcendent, the sovereign, and yet he's eminent. He is my savior. He is my Lord. He's a king who controls all things. He's a prophet who has full authority and right to be obeyed. He's a priest who is present to mediate the blessings and the cursings of the covenant. Now over against this very, I think, uh, elementary summary of Christian dogma, over against this notion of the lordship of God and his transcendence and eminence stands synthesis theology, the modern counterfeit. A very subtle counterfeit 
of this view of God to be sure, but nevertheless a counterfeit. One which I want to maintain this morning always leads, must inevitably lead, to idolatry and to a loss of hope. Perhaps I can illustrate that for you uh, outside of uh, especially scriptural themes from church history. I say that synthesis theology is a counterfeit of divine transcendence and a counterfeit of divine eminence, and it leads to idolatry and it leads to a loss of hope. I think that's illustrated very well in the 4th century. You see, in the 4th century, Origenism, which was a very clever synthesis of Christianity with Greek philosophy, had captured the Christian intellectual establishment. It had produced confusion over the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And the breaking point came in the 4th century with the person of Arius. When Arius finally, you see, put the last straw on the camel's back and maintained that the Son of God was in fact a creature. This synthesis with Greek philosophy in origin finally led an Arius, you see, to the declaration that the Son of God was a creature. But God in his providence raised up a reformer. In the fourth century, his name was Athanasius, a very courageous man who took a uh, courageous stand, you see, in the breach against the very often vindictive Arian establishment against him. And what was the message of Athanasius? You'll notice how Athanasius didn't look for greater philosophical subtleties. He didn't try to get involved in the establishment or originism of his day. But Athanasius stood against the tide by maintaining very simply that Arianism is idolatry because it teaches us to worship a creature. And he said, secondly, that Arianism leaves us no salvation because there can be no salvation through a mere creature. You see, if you buy into the synthesis theology of your day, you'll end up with idolatry and a loss of hope, no salvation. And so, by sticking to the religious simplicities of the Bible, Athanasius brought reformation. The synthesis theology motif is found later, too, you see, in the 16th century, if you want to take another example. There we find what is often called the medieval synthesis, the medieval synthesis being a clever synthesis of Christianity with Aristotelianism and Neoplatonism, terms which you'll run into in the philosophy classes here at the seminary. Now, this synthesis was developed well by Thomas Aquinas, others as well, but Aquinas captured, I think, the Christian intellectual establishment, and when he captured it with his synthesis, he produced great confusion over the doctrine of justification. And just as the 4th century had its philosophical synthesis and then its breaking point, so the 16th century had its uh, Thomistic synthesis and then its breaking point. When that infamous monk, Tetzel, went about huckstering salvation, given the Roman Catholic notion of justification. And God in his providence raised up a reformer. His name was Luther in this century. And what was Luther's message? It was the same as Athanasius. A simple, biblical message showing how basic the issue really was when you fight synthesis theology. Luther said the mass, pure and simple, is idolatry. And Luther said, salvation through the Roman church leaves me with no certain hope of my standing before God. You see, idolatry and a loss of hope resulted from the breaking point of the medieval synthesis. And now I tell you, brothers in Christ, we live in the midst of another age of synthesis. What has happened in the 4th century, what happened in the 16th century, is now happening in the 20th century. In the 19th and 20th centuries, a series of syntheses between Christianity and what I think is Kantian philosophy has really captured the Christian intellectual establishment. And of course, uh, this synthesis is developed by a number of men, but perhaps two leading advocates of the synthesis would be Schleiermacher, the old liberalism, and Barth, the new liberalism. 
a synthesis between the Kantian philosophy that says there can be no transcendent revelation from God and the traditional Christian faith, which wants to have a Lord and a Savior nonetheless. This type of synthesis has captured the intellectual establishment and has produced confusion about Scripture. And, of course, with the confusion about Scripture has come confusion about every other point of doctrine. Well, the 4th century had its breaking point, and the 16th century had its breaking point, and it seems to me, if I can play the part of prophet, that the 20th century has reached its breaking point. Now, any number of examples might be brought up before you, but I think that perhaps the best thing that can be said is when anybody starts talking about Christian atheism or Christian Marxism, when we can have people speak of baptizing Marx against his will into Christ, against Christ's will, then we are at a breaking point when all credibility has been shattered and when it's time for reform. And what should our message be in the 20th century? Perhaps we should get very deeply involved in analytic and existential philosophy and become much more subtle, you see, than Bart is. Much more subtle than his Pannenberg. Much more subtle than his Moltmann or Gadamer or all the rest. But I don't think God needs higher philosophical subtleties or deeper philosophical subtleties or wider philosophical subtleties. God needs men who will stand against the stream and who will bring a very simple message to their age who will stand against the philosophical synthesis and say it produces idolatry and it produces a loss of hope. Well, how does that come about? How is it that those who want a Lord and a Savior without an inerrant word end up in idolatry and with a loss of hope? Well, it will take us a number of days to thoroughly explore that theme. I didn't hope in this introductory message to get it all out before you. But I'd like to suggest to you that if we will, as we shall throughout this week, Lord willing, study the person of God and the nature of God's covenant, we will have to come to the conclusion eventually that if there is no authoritative and infallible word from God, then there is no Lord. And that if there is no authoritative, infallible word from God, there is no Savior. Notice how throughout the Bible, obedience to the word of God is made a criterion of Christian discipleship. Jesus said to the people of his day, you will be my disciples if you abide in my word. Very simply, in my word. And if you're of God, you will hear the words of God. And those who will not hear my words, and those who will not submit to them as my disciples, will show that they are of another father, the devil. And Jesus says that there is the greatest of contrasts between his word and the word of the devil, because the devil, he says, is a liar from the beginning, and there is no truth in him. And by contrast, Jesus says, I speak the word of truth. That's why Jesus in the garden, before going to the cross, could pray to the Father, sanctify them in the word of truth. The Bible presents itself as a word of truth, as a covenant document, and as the expression of the Lord's will. And if we undermine the expression of the Lord's will, if we take away the covenantal stature, and that means the authority of the scriptures, then we have no covenant, we have no Lord, and we have no salvation. I think we can put it very simply this way. When God freely chose to create men, he chose to create them and to rule them by his word. Indeed, to be in authority means to speak something. I can't exercise authority over you this morning from the pulpit unless I speak to you from the pulpit. And you can't obey commandments from me or anybody else unless somebody first gives you commandments in a way which can be intellectually digested, that is, in some spoken or written form. 
And so God, by his very nature, as the Lord over creation, and as the one who will be head of the covenant, will of necessity give his word to his people. In fact, you will find a persistent theme throughout the Bible that without the word of God, we are without a covenant. And without a word from God, we are without direction. And without a word from God, we do not know where we stand, either in creation or before our creator. And so if there is no authoritative and infallible word, there is no Lord. But you see how utterly destructive that is of Christian faith? What is the foundational, simplest, briefest confession of Christian faith? Jesus is Lord. And all that that means in terms of the scriptural context, Jesus is Lord. And therefore, anything that prevents me from saying Jesus is Lord cuts me off from Christian profession. And if there is no word from God, there is no salvation either. Jesus is not a savior. For you see, salvation is just one of the many things that God does in the exercise of his sovereignty. It is one exercise of his lordship. It is a leading motif in his covenantal dealings with his people. It's an aspect of the covenant structure. Salvation involves God writing covenant words to his people. Indeed, writing those words on our hearts. Salvation means God calling us efficaciously out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It means a promise of the gospel, a declaration of sins forgiven, guidance for the present life, and hope for the life to come. Salvation necessitates not only a word from God as such that he might be Lord, but salvation necessitates a very special type of utterance, a word that can't be found in nature, a word that goes beyond it and declares to me grace and forgiveness. Now, modern theology says we have no authoritative and inerrant word from God. Modern theology proposes a new synthesis. Modern theology says that, in fact, one can know the lordship of God apart from a word and can be saved apart from an inerrant promise. Indeed, especially since Bart, I think theologians have said much about lordship and salvation, but very frequently, if you'll read the modern theologians, you will notice that their word is devoid of intelligible content, and more than that, more than being obscure, more than being vague, their word is contradictory. If, in fact, God speaks as the modern theologians tell us, then God speaks often in a very contradictory fashion. Now, I'm not making philosophical points this morning. I'm asking you now, as a saved child of God, to consider what that means to you if God speaks out of both sides of his mouth. I ask you what it means if God speaks vaguely and ambiguously, uncertainly, in many places, untruly. What it means is, I have no sure Lord. I have no sure word of salvation. And so, you see how the modern synthesis has reproduced the effects of the ancient syntheses. The modern synthesis has left me with idolatry. Instead of a clear word from God, I have the ambiguous words of men. I must trust humanistic assumptions and all alike. And instead of a sure word of promise and salvation, I no longer have hope that God says, forgiven to me, that God says that I am his child. I only have the ambiguity of modern theology. No word, no Lord. No word, no salvation. Without such an authoritative word of God, then there isn't lordship in the biblical sense, and there isn't salvation in any hopeful sense. Without such a word, we have no basis for confessing Christ as the Lord, Christ as the Savior. Indeed, to say that Christ is Lord and Savior without an inerrant word from God approaches meaninglessness. 
And that is why the authority of Scripture is so important this week and throughout our lives, I trust. That is why we cannot say we love Christ while disowning the Bible. And that is why when we present the gospel, we must present it as a word of authority, a sure promise, a word which demands precedence over all other words, a word which for all of its simplicity stands against philosophical subtlety, a word which says it will judge all philosophers and scientists by its own criteria rather than being subject to the adjudication of men. To present the word of God as anything less, I think, is to detract, really, from the lordship of Christ and from the greatness of his salvation. As our Lord and as our Savior, Christ is the author of Scripture. And so why is it so important that I believe in an inspired and inerrant word of God? Very simply, friends, because it's my lifeline to Christ. And if I own him, I must cling to the lifeline. And if the lifeline should be cut, if it should be marred, if it should be disputed, to that extent... My Lord and my Savior are cut off from me. And so those who are truly born of God, those who hear the word of God, will obey it, will confess it as truth and see it over against the falsity and the lies of Satan. It's a simple issue, I realize, but it's an issue that can bring reform today. Will God raise up men from Reformed Seminary to bring that reform to the 20th century? If he won't do it here, he'll do it in his time. Let's pray, God, he'll raise you up. As a man, as Athanasius, or as a man like Luther, who will stand against the synthesis and say, forget the idolatries of men, forget the hopelessness of men, and give me an inspired, infallible word. It's my lifeline to my Savior. Let's pray. It's lightly, if you will. We noted yesterday the need for reformation in 20th century Christianity for the simple reason that theology in the 20th century has reached a breaking point, a breaking point similar to the breaking point of theology in the 4th and 16th centuries uh, previous to us. I ask that God would raise up, even from among uh, men in our midst, reformers, men who would stand against and challenge the subtleties of the modern theologians with the simple message of the covenant Lord. That is, men who would challenge the idolatry of modern theology, which worships really an unknown God and worships this unknown God on the basis of human wisdom a modern theology which undermines any definitive hope for us because it undermines the word of redemption and pardon from God. And so I ask, why is it that we need an inspired, an infallible, an inerrant, inscripturated word from God? What is the necessity? What is the centrality of that doctrine? And the answer, quite simply, was Jesus Christ. We defend such a version of scriptural authority because of Jesus Christ, whom we confess as our Lord and as our Savior. Because, you see, without such a word, there is no lordship and there is no sure saving promise. The infallible Bible, I concluded, the infallible Bible is my lifeline to Jesus Christ. And so we defend and are fully committed to the authoritative scriptures because we are wholeheartedly committed to Christ and there is no other way. Now today I'd like to continue that lesson by covering pretty much the same ground, but now going over it with a little more depth, touching down a little more uh, deeply into some of these points. I'll attempt to further our analysis and hopefully our understanding, and thereby discover what commitment to the word of Christ entails in terms of our attitude and our actions. We'll be looking again then at the necessity of scriptural authority, the unqualifiedly central, inspired, infallible word from God. But we'll be looking at it with a special attention this morning, a special attention to a derisive accusation 
that whether you hear it in the terms that I'm going to present it this morning or not, it is heard continually. The derisive accusation that we as Protestants who have this infallible and inerrant Bible worship a paper pope. That is, that we are guilty of substituting uh, the Pope of Rome, uh, substituting for the Pope of Rome, a Pope made of paper. And we are guilty, secondly, of bibliolatry, worshiping the Bible rather than the Christ of the Bible. Our opponents and our detractors ridicule our attachment to an inerrant and fully authoritative Bible, as I say, as worshiping a paper Pope. And I ask you this morning, what are we to make of that kind of talk? Well, let's begin by looking specifically at how the synthesis and concessive theology of the 20th century undermines the word of God in the scripture. And I want to bring two points before your attention. First of all, you will notice that modern theology will maintain that the concept of an infallible and written word of God, that that concept really originates in 20th century fundamentalism. Or others will maintain that that concept really originates in 17th century rationalism, the Calvinistic scholastics. Or, that concept of a written and infallible word originates in medieval scholasticism. Or, that concept of an infallible word originates in post-apostolic defensiveness against the heretics. Or even some are still maintaining that that concept of a written canon, an infallible word, originates in late Jewish legalism. Well, whatever you know, school of modern theology you come to, the idea is, of course, uh, can be summarized in the notion of a paper pope. The Bible in itself does not require that it be taken with such authority. But it has been made into such an authority, made into a pope, made into a paper pope, just as the Roman Catholic Church has made a mere man into a pope. You see, this concept of a written word of God, an infallible word of God, originates somewhere in history. Well, that's the first point. The second point that modern theology would make that stands contrary to our, ver our version of the Word of God and its authority is what I would consider a counterfeit doctrine of the transcendence and eminence of God. We touched on this yesterday. Uh, by a counterfeit doctrine of the transcendence of God, I mean the view that God is in some sense wholly other. That God is so far beyond us that he is so different from us that nothing within the created realm can be definitively and intelligibly identified with him or his word. That is, this notion of transcendence denies any identifiable and clear presence of God in the world. And of course, in that case, our hope is undermined. And then there's also a counterfeit imminence that goes along with such a doctrine of transcendence as it always has through the history of philosophy and theology. Not only is there this idea that God is so wholly different and wholly other from us that he cannot be identified in history, but then there's also the view of eminence, which in one way or another in the modern theologians compromises the creator-creature distinction. Strangely enough, God is so wholly other for Bart that God can become totally identified with my experience of him in crisis. God can become identified in some idolatrous way with my experience or my reason or my encounter or my self-understanding or, again, whatever school of theology you'd like to look at. A false transcendence and a false eminence. Now, by these two routes, modern theology undermines our word of hope from God. But the scriptural perspective, by stark contrast, can be put very simply as well. In two words, God speaks. But I want to variously emphasize that God speaks and that God speaks. You see, on the basis of orthodox dogma, God speaks. God is eminent in the sense that he is not silent and that his word can be identified in history, can be identified in a book. 
can be equated with his word. But it's not just that God is eminent because he has spoken, but it is that God has spoken. There's the transcendence. You see, the emphasis on the fact that it is not an indecisive word, it's not a faulty word, it's the word of God and therefore bears divine attributes. The entire Bible functions as the self-expression of God's lordship over us. The word's message is an utterance of his covenant lordship as he directs all things to the fulfillment of his purposes, as he advances his covenantal designs in relation to his elect people. And thus anything which detracts from the Bible's ability to fulfill God's ends, whether they be in creation or in redemption, anything detracting from the Bible's ability to fulfill the ends of the covenant Lord is an affront to the Lord of the covenant and cuts right across the purpose of Scripture itself. Notice how it is that Scripture everywhere assumes that God has spoken clearly to his creature man. Indeed, the whole biblical story, in a sense, can be summarized as the speaking of God and man's response to that. The whole story of the Bible is about God speaking his word and the response of man to it. Just think of the pre-fall situation. And God said, and it was done, and God said. And man was created by that speaking word of God. And the first experience of man in history was the blessing of God upon him. And God gave to man a prohibition. And God expected man to have communion with him and to live by his word. And then look at the narrative of the fall. What is the crucial point in the fall of man? In a sense, you can pick it out when Satan said, Half God? Really, said? You see, the word of God was at stake in the fall of man. And after the fall of man, God comes calling to Adam in the garden. God comes questioning Adam and Eve in the garden. God then pronounces his cursing upon them and then pronounces his blessing and promise upon them. The first promise of redemption, you see, becomes the crucial point for the whole history of redemption after that. Think of the giving of the covenant to Israel. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God. The law of the Old Testament, the history of God's mighty deeds in the, whole, in the Old Testament recorded for our wonder, for our benefit, the Psalms responding to God's goodness to man, the prophets indicting the people on the basis of the word of God, the prophets anticipating the coming of the Messiah, the Gospels in the New Testament, just remember how Hebrews 1 says, God having of old time spoken unto the fathers in the prophets by divers portions and in divers manners, hath at the end of these days spoken unto us in his Son. And the Gospels tell us of that word of God, Jesus Christ. And the epistles, you see, are the words of instruction, the words of direction from that risen Christ to his new covenant people. See, the whole story of the Bible is the story of God speaking. That's crucial to biblical Christianity. And moreover, God has given that word in written form. Not only is it that God speaks, but he speaks in written form. This written scripture is no less God's word than God's personal address to Abraham. It's no, less than God, it's no less God's word than are those tablets that Moses received on Mount Sinai. It is no less God's word than his speaking through the prophets to his covenant people. It is no less God's word than his incarnate son who has empowered men by the Holy Spirit to write his word of truth. Yesterday we said that God's authority is his sovereign right to govern the conduct of his creatures. Because, you see, to be authoritative, you have to say something. To be obeyed, you must first command. And so God must be a speaking God if he's going to be a covenantal God, if he's to be the authoritative Lord. 
And that's why those many modern theologies which relegate the content and the meaning of Scripture to something of a secondary or subordinate status, um, subordinate to the power of the Word of God which affects us, which does something to us, which illumines us or moves us or puts us in a new position or gives us an existential self-understanding. And it's those theologies which subordinate the content of Scripture to the power of Scripture to do things to me are so mistaken. The lordship of God must be expressed in intelligible content. Indeed, the concept of God speaking in a verbal form which can be inscripturated for the covenantal people of God. The concept of a written word of God doesn't begin with Jewish legalism or medieval scholasticism or 17th century rationalism or 20th century fundamentalism. It doesn't begin at any of these places but is rather embedded in the original constitution of the covenantal people of God. It is rooted in the very nature of God as the covenant head. In the very nature of God as our authoritative Lord. Indeed, that concept of a written word of God, a covenantal word to the people of God, is ingrained throughout the scriptures. It permeates the Bible from beginning to end. You might begin by thinking of the covenantal memorials, the books of the generations in the early chapters of Genesis, the memorial stones and the pillars, the altars, all of which are prototypes of the covenant document to come through Moses to the people of God at Sinai, especially in its paradigm form in the book of Deuteronomy. But I think even before that, the paradigm of the, of the covenantal scripture is found atop Mount Sinai when Moses is given the first written word from God. And you'll notice how the Bible stresses it was written by the very finger of God. That's the paradigm for the rest of scripture, written as though by the very finger of God. And then, of course, the history of the Old Testament is that history of God's mighty and redemptive acts, not written as secular history is, but written from a theological perspective, written for the sake of God's people. There's the written prophecy of the Old Testament as an enduring witness against the people and it is as an anticipation for a people who will receive the word of God and know the Messiah himself. The New Testament looks back upon the Old Testament and applies very interesting titles to it. It applies very interesting formulae to it, saying God speaks, Scripture speaks. It talks of the oracles of God and introduces so often the authoritative dogma of the New Testament with it stands written. Now, the New Testament revelation itself was codified into a permanent body of truth, which is technically called the tradition, the tradition, an oral, codified, permanent body of truth. And what's important for us to see, I think, is that this uh, permanent body of oral truth does not distract from the necessity of and the infallibility of the covenant word as an absolute standard. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. I delivered unto you. In oral tradition. But notice how Jesus says in Matthew the 11th chapter, All things have been delivered unto me of my Father, and no one knoweth the Son save the Father, neither doth any know the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son willeth to reveal him. You see, the background of that oral tradition of the New Testament goes all the way back to the Father in heaven who delivers to the Son the words of the covenant, who delivers to his apostolic representatives that tradition that is carried on to the church. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, So then, brethren, stand fast and hold the tradition which you were taught, whether by word or by epistle. Paul doesn't seem to think there's any difference in the authority of that oral tradition or the epistles that are now being written in the late New Testament era. 
Now we command you, brethren, he says in the next chapter, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, that is not after the tradition which he received of us. That is still an inerrant and absolute infallible standard by which the covenant people are to be directed. In Jude 3, we learn that we must contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered, the once for all tradition, codified tradition of the New Testament, delivered unto the saints. But of course it doesn't remain an oral tradition because the word of God must be inscripturated for the sake of future generations. It is put down in written form. And the New Testament writers claim divine inspiration for their source and they place their writings on a par with the Old Testament scriptures. Now the point I'm driving at in this very brief survey of the Bible and the speaking of God and the written speaking of God is just this, that to be part of God's covenant people is to have the Lord's word and dependable and errant permanent form. That's why the Bible throughout makes obedience to God's word a criterion of godliness and discipleship. It can do so because it assumes that the covenant people have the covenant scriptures. The endurance of the covenant and the continuation of God's people call for the inscripturation that we've been speaking of. I find it fascinating that in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter can say, to whom it was revealed, that is the Old Testament prophets, that not unto themselves, but unto you did they minister these things which have now been announced unto you through them that preach the gospel. The Old Testament prophets wrote to you. And of course, that means it couldn't be an oral word to you. It had to be inscripturated. Or Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says, Now these things happened unto them by way of example, speaking of the children of God in the wilderness. Paul goes on, And they were written... Why were they inscripturated? They were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages are come. And so because of the nature of God as the covenant Lord and because of the very nature of the covenant, the word of God is necessary to God. The word of God is necessary to his purposes. The inscripturated word of God is central to our covenant obedience. And so we don't have a paper pope. We have a word from God which is in itself demanding that we respond to it as inerrant, infallible, and inspired. We don't make of the Bible anything but what the Bible makes of itself. The Roman Catholic Church may exalt a man to the position of Pope. We need not exalt a paper book to that position. It comes to us claiming that position. Well, how about bibliolatry? Do we worship this paper Pope? The first thing that I think we need to say to those who accuse us of bibliolatry is to notice, first of all, that the Bible claims to have divine attributes. Divine attributes. In the 119th Psalm, you'll notice that righteousness and faithfulness and wonderfulness and uprightness and purity, truth, eternality and perfection are all attributed to the scriptures. In fact, in Revelation 15, we read that only God is holy. Jesus tells us in Mark 10 that only God is good. Only God is holy. Only God is good. And yet Paul can say in Romans the 7th chapter that God's law is holy, righteous, and good. Unique divine attributes are attributed to the Bible. And the Word of God can perform divine acts. Not only does it have divine attributes, but it performs divine acts. We read in the scriptures that by God's word, the world was created. By his word, he providentially controls all things. By his word, he brings judgment to men, declares that judgment, categorizes men and judges them. By his word, he brings grace as well and declares the promise of forgiveness. The word of God has divine attributes and the word of God performs divine acts. But I think really, if you're going to get to the heart of the matter, 
what I have to say, and I hope this will sink in very well, the Word of God is presented to us in the Bible as an object of worship. Let that sink in for a minute. As an actual object of worship. In Psalm 56, verse 4 and 10, we read, In God I will praise His Word. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can flesh do unto me? Verse 10, In God I will praise His Word. In Jehovah I will praise His Word. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid. In Psalm 138, verse 2, the psalmist says, I will worship toward thy holy temple and give thanks unto thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Yes, I will worship your name, but I'll worship your word even above your name as a fuller manifestation of your character. In Psalm 119, verse 48, perhaps the most significant statement of all under this uh, rubric, the psalmist says, I will lift up my hands unto thy commandments, which I have loved, and I will meditate on thy statutes. The reason that the uh, full significance of that doesn't hit you at first is because we're not familiar with the language of the psalmist about the lifting up of the hands. Perhaps it'll help you if I read a few other passages that speak in that way. So will I bless thee while I live, the psalmist says. I will lift up my hands in thy name. Mine eye wasted away by reason of affliction. I have called daily unto thee, O Jehovah. I have spread forth my hands unto thee. Let my prayer be set forth as incense before thee. The lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, I desire therefore that men pray in every place, lifting up holy hands without wrath and disputing. What does the lifting up of the hands mean? It means an act of divine worship. I will stretch forth my hands to God as the evening sacrifice. I will pray to God with uplifted hands. And the psalmist says, I will lift up my hands to thy commandments. In Psalm 28:2, the psalmist says, Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry unto thee, when I lift up my hands toward thy holy oracles. Well, the first thing I think we have to say to those who accuse us of bibliolatry is that the writers of Scripture worship the Word of God. But they do so without becoming guilty of idolatry. And the reason they can worship the Word of God is just because the Word of God is a functional substitute for the very person of God himself. God can even by, be identified with his word, you'll notice. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God. Of course, referring to Jesus Christ, our Savior. There is something of a parallel to be drawn between the incarnation of the Son of God and the inscripturation of the word of God. And therefore, we are called to respond to the words of scripture as we would respond to the very personal voice of God addressed to us in the scripture. We can't approach Scripture in a casual manner, as though it were merely a textbook. Our attitude toward the Word of God must be our attitude toward God Himself. And that's why I think Dr. Burkhauer is so misled when he says, when God speaks, human voices ring in our ears. Of course, I don't deny that the Scripture comes to us in human form. But you notice how Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, And for this cause we also thank God without ceasing, that when ye received from us the word of the message, even the word of God, ye accepted it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also worketh in you that believe. Jesus was fully man, but I respond to him as fully God. And so the word of God is also in human form, but that doesn't diminish its authority. It doesn't in any way distract from the ability of God to speak directly to me. My response to the scripture must be my response to God himself. 
The word of God in scripture is always a divine word in character. It bears divine attributes. God speaks not only to prophets, God speaks through prophets to you and to me. In a clear, unambiguous, unquestionable way, with no diminishing of his authority. Well, we said yesterday that the reason we defend an inerrant and infallible and inspired Bible is because it's our lifeline to Christ. Without it, there is no lordship. Without it, there is no savior. This morning, I amplify upon that, and I say the reason we respond that way is because we must respond that way to God himself. As you handle the word of God and as you respond to it, keep in mind then that your response and your treatment is the response to God himself. Consider briefly what that means in closing. I dare say that if Jesus Christ in person visited you in your apartment, you wouldn't put him in a closet for weeks on end. The pagans take better care of their idols than we take care of our Bibles. And I don't mean the way we treat them, but I mean the way we let dust accumulate on them. One of the most destructive tendencies and attitudes in the modern church, moreover, I think, is the idea that there must be a special devotional period with the Bible every day. But didn't I just get done saying that we're supposed to pay constant attention to it? Don't put it away in the closet and let dust accumulate? Yes, but look at what kind of attention you pay to the Bible. You can never approach the Bible as an academic exercise. I don't care how many assignments I or other professors give you. It cannot become an academic exercise. It will always be a spiritual exercise. I don't say it will always be a blessing. It may be a cursing. It may be a hardening. But it will always be God directly dealing with you. And to the extent that you treat it as an academic exercise, you are hardening your heart to the word of God speaking directly to you there. And to the degree that you think you can make up for that by a devotional exercise in the morning or evening where you don't have any academic interest or theological interest in the book, but just some, some sort of inner feeling, to that degree you also do desperate to the word of God. We don't need a devotional exercise and an academic exercise. We need people who approach the Bible as the very word of God, God speaking directly to them at all times, under all circumstances, and in all places. Our loyalty to the scripture is all too often a divided and unqualified loyalty. I mean, a qualified loyalty, it seems to me. We respond to the Bible as though it were just one more authority among many, just one more word to be put in balance with other words that are speaking to us in our lives. But you know, if Jesus Christ were standing at your side, speaking those things right to you, you wouldn't turn and say, I'm not quite sure of that word. I think maybe you've made a mistake. Or, Lord, it embarrasses me that your commandments require that kind of thing. You see, we think we can put a distance between us and the requirements of God because of the paper form this word comes to us in. But God speaks directly to you in the scripture and your response to the Bible is your response to God himself. And so if you're embarrassed by the provisions of the law, if you're hesitant about affirming the challenged teachings of the Bible, then just remember how you would respond on the day of judgment when Jesus asked how the covenant word was handled in your life. We need, you see, to comprehend what the divinity of that book in our hands means. To get hold of it is equivalent to being overwhelmed with a sense of that last judgment before the throne of our Lord God Almighty. For you see, on that day, we will all answer, every one of us, for every response in attitude, word, or behavior to the inspired covenantal word of God. On that day, his word will thoroughly scrutinize us it will be the ultimate standard by which all of our opinions and all of our feelings and of all men shall be explored in full light and brought under judgment. Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my sayings hath one that judgeth him. 
And you might say, well, of course, Jesus himself will judge such a person. But Jesus lets the scripture be a functional substitute. He says, Thou, the word that I spake, the same shall judge him in the last day. And so I ask you this morning to live with that sense about you day by day. That sense in which every action and word will be drawn under judgment according to the standard of God's word. Keep that as a picture in the front of your mind, governing your actions and your feelings. Augustine wept because of his sins before he was converted, not knowing where to turn or what to do. And he says in his confessions that he heard as though it were a voice from God himself, the voice of a child in a near...